Welcome to Calvary Albuquerque. We pursue the God who is passionately pursuing a lost world. We do this with one another. Through worship, by the word, to the world. Hello, Calvary family. Although I'm sorry I can't be with you today, I'm glad to introduce to you our guest speaker, Josh McDowell, someone who has impacted my life for years. Since 1961, Josh has delivered more than 26,000 talks to over 25 million people around the world. He and his team have created many cutting-edge events to help young people stand strong and firm in their faith. Josh is also the co-author of, get this, 138 books, including More Than a Carpenter, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and now New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, a work that has been key in shaping evangelical thought. I was also privileged to have Josh and his family in a church that I pastored for a couple of years in Southern California. So please give a warm welcome to Josh McDowell. Good morning. Well, with a morning like this, we ought to meet outside. That's for sure. Well, this morning, I only got 35 minutes, and I'm boiling over with what to share. So I'm going to not tell you how what a privilege it is to be here with you and everything. I'm going to skip all of that and go right into what God has laid in my heart. What you're going to experience this morning, except for last night in the first service, has never, ever happened in a church in 2,000 years. What you have before you here, nobody's ever had the gall to lay something this valuable, this rare, out before a church audience or any audience. What you're seeing here before you and you can touch afterwards is one of the rarest scrolls in the world, probably one of the top five. It's called the Lot Scroll. I named it the Lot Scroll. I've owned it for three months and only had it in my possession for three weeks because I had to have it reconditioned, the strings tightened, in order to protect it even more. It is the Torah. What's the Torah? The Torah is what is referred to as the Law of Moses. What is the Law of Moses? The first five books of the Bible. From uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And you have to understand, this thing is 72 feet long. One-third of it is not even unrolled. And then... Uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy. You have here a scroll that has survived since a thousand, since 1450 AD, almost 700 years. The reason it survived is that it came from a very poor community on the German Polish border. And they were so poor they could not afford a new scroll. Normally a scroll like this would have been destroyed. And then they would have purchased a new one, had a new one created. But they didn't have the money to do it. As a result, it makes it one of the rarest scrolls in history. It's preserved things uh, through the middle, medieval times, the Black Death, the Holocaust, everything that has almost never been preserved. Most people have never seen a scroll. They have never touched a scroll. You can come up and touch. I was thrilled just to touch it. But please do not touch the writing. Normally, you shouldn't even touch the scroll, but hey, it's Calvary Chapel. Uh, do not touch, because you have oil on your skin. And I didn't bring the things to wipe your, the oil off to be able to touch it, because the oil will deteriorate it and uh, the printing. So you can touch the borders, but please do not touch it. No food, drink, and please no small children. No small children. 
Because I was watching before some, and they were picking it and pulling it over there, the, the samples of parchment, and they do the same thing with the scrolls, and that could damage it. And so I'm asking no small children uh, there, especially if it's a father, because the father doesn't pay attention to the kids. <laughs> but they don't! The mother does. You never trust kids around their dad. He's off in Wooly Wooly Land somewhere. Now, what you're going to see today is the reverence for God's Word by a group of people that God created called Jewish scribes to preserve His works for 3,000 years accurately. They wanted to make sure they had accuracy of copying it, accuracy of pronouncing it, and accuracy of interpreting it. No other literature of history, including the New Testament, had such an emphasis on accuracy. Now, there's in this scroll here, there's 36 calfskins. Many scrolls took up to 80 calfskins to do it. It took them weeks, months, just to prepare the skins uh, to do this. And the scroll is dated about 1450 A.D. by five different experts. To do a scroll, you had to be a certified scribe. Now, this is just part of being certified. You had to memorize and know 4,000 laws or principles in copying a manuscript. 4,000. In this scroll right here, if it was totally unraveled, is over, is the application of 4,000 laws to guarantee the accuracy of what they've done. No one in history, even the Quran or anything, came even close to that. As they did with the Old Testament and with the Torah. They, every skin had to be, and down there we have calf skin and we have sheep skin. Most people have never seen. It's called parchment. It was writing material and everything uh, before papyrus. And um, you could touch it, everything down there. And what is interesting, the dark skin is sheep and the light skin is calf. You'd think it would be the other way around. And the sheep skin has a heavier texture. You can feel that. But it had to come from a perfect cow, unblemished, a kosher cow. The strings that you can see tied all together came from the muscles of the legs of a perfect calf. That they tie, and I had them all tightened. They undid it and retightened them to make sure as I unraveled it like this, it wouldn't tear the scroll in any way. They would use, in preparing the skin, they would soak it in plain water, seawater first, and then they would sprinkle barley over the water, and then they would soak it in gall nuts. We have some gall nuts down there. Most people have never seen a gall nut. They don't even know what they are. They come off trees. The wasp create them. And many medicines come out of gall nuts. They're very expensive. I paid over $20 each for those little tiny gall nuts. So please don't take one as a souvenir. Please don't. But um, they would make gall nut. They would boil the... Not boil it. They would keep... They'd never boil it because it would destroy a certain aspect of it in hot water for six hours. And then they would soak the calf skin in it. And then they would string it up. And then they would scrape the hair right off of it. And they would soak it in lime water, which would help to remove the hair. And then they would sand the entire thing. And then often, if it was quite dark, and you can see one of the ones over there, they would chalk it. 
So it would be very white, so the letters would stand out distinct. And then when you did a skin, they often had holes that would develop in it, like right here. This is a calf skin, and it has a hole in it. And when they would often create this hole when they would stretch the skin because that was a weak area of this, of the parchment. So then, before they ever started writing, and you can see the patches through there, they would patch it. And they would do the patches with glue made out of animal fat. And think of it, some of them lasted 700 years and still in perfect condition. And so you can see patches throughout the scroll. Then after this, they felt that the more perfect the grid that everything was written, you won't be able to believe this was written by hand. took over one year to do it. There's over 304,000 letters. Some letters took five, ten minutes to make one letter. That's why it took over years, hours every day for a year, except for the Sabbath. And they had to have a perfect grid. So what they did, you can see it over there. You can't see it in most of it because they would fold these under uh, so they'd have a d- four layers of skin. Then they would sew it. So you can't see it. But at the beginning, I have magnifying glasses there. And the thing on this says pinholes. You can see, not with the human eye. You need them. They have little pinholes that goes down the scrolls with each end of every skin. Then... They would do it from side to side at every column. There's a hole where the line would begin, the line would end. And what would they do? They'd put little pins in there. And then between the ones, they would place a little tiny thread and they would tie it. And then they'd take a a dull knife and they'd trace the knife down that to create a perfect grid. And you can see, you can see the lines, the grid, all the way through the text because they believed the more perfect the writing was and orderly, the less chance of misreading it, miscopying it, or misinterpreting You know, it's true. If you just took and written out by hand, you know, and go up a little bit down, it could be very easy to miscopy and everything. But when it's perfect, but then you look at it, three people came up, one called up to the room up there and said, well, tell Josh he placed the scroll upside down. No, no. That's a Gentile's, unlearned Gentile's opinion. No Jew would say that. But if you walk up and look at it, you say, oh my gosh, they unrolled it upside down. Why? Because when we would make a line, we would write the letter on top of the line. And going underneath the line would be like the P or the G. They didn't do it that way. They hung the letters from, go to that, go to the next one. They hung the letters from the line. And then the lamp on others would extend above the line. So when you look at it, you say, well, it's upside down. No, that's the Gentile opinion. The Jew, the Jewish person would know, no, it's right side up. They would hang it. But they wanted it to end exactly in a line, begin exactly in a line, and written exactly hung from a line. Why? And it's true. Less chance of miscopying it because they were so committed to accuracy or misreading it. Then, the quills, the writing material, was made from the feathers. They always tried to choose a goose or a turkey. Why? The quills are a little firmer, and so you didn't have to sharpen them as much. Now, you can imagine, not one letter supposed to touch in 72 feet. And yet they were done with a quill and made so close together. Or just a little bit of an air. 
And if the letters touched, it was considered an error and had to be erased and corrected. And that's why they would use the goose or the turkey feather. When they prepared the ink, they did it out of the gall nuts. They would crush them up. They'd put it in a, in a fabric sack and hammer them until they were all broken up. Then they would take out all the shell and then they would uh, put it in hot water for six hours, add some uh, different elements to it and everything. But they'd only do a little bit of ink at a time. Why? They found out when they just did a little bit of ink and the ink was fresh, when you wrote, it lasted longer. It was more durable. If they made a whole bunch of it and it set for days and everything before they wrote, it would fade much faster. Now you can see throughout here, especially right the, the column just for the end of the scroll, a lot of the letters are kind of orange. They have faded. Now normally what would happen with a scroll like this, when it would fade like that or corrections done or got re- torn a little bit damaged, they would not use it any longer in the synagogue because they not only didn't want to uh, miscopy the scroll, they didn't want to misread it. And so they would take the scroll like this and use it in their Sunday school, the, the, the uh, synagogue schools. And then it was too worn to do there, too faded. They would put it in a wooden cupboard or a place called the Ganitsa. And when that was full, they'd take the scrolls out and bury them. That's why you don't have a lot of old scrolls. But this one here was done by such a poor community, they couldn't afford a new scroll. And so what they did was re-ink it. And as you go through here, you can see places that are darker, many of these, where they'd re-ink the scrolls. And if they still had this, when they migrated after World War II to Israel, the community had to sell this just to survive for food. What it must have meant to them to sell this scroll. And it came down through three hands before I finally was able to discover it and purchase it. Thank God the guy didn't know what he had. But to, uh, <laughs> no, I got about one twentieth of its value. And uh, so you will see the dark and the light, and that's because they hadn't re-inked that yet. Now, normally they'd never re-ink it. They'd destroy the scroll and create a new one. But they didn't have the money to do it. As a result, this scroll preserves things that no other scroll, hardly any other scroll, maybe four others in history, even preserves. That's why it's so rare, but it's because it was a poor community and they didn't destroy it. Then, in Matthew 5.18, is something that few Christians understand. It says this, Jesus said, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot... One tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now Jesus is saying, I'm going to preserve my word. So much so that even a jot and a tittle will remain after 3,000 years. How many of you know here could stand up and explain what a jot is? One person, two. How many of you know what a tittle is? Three. Folks, when you leave here the rest of your life, you're going to know what a jot and tittle is. In fact, right there, I found a jot and a tittle together. It's right there uh, on the 18th column. Right together, a jot and a tittle. Now, a jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It looks like a heavy apostrophe, like a heavy apostrophe up in the top left. The tittle was done for for adorning letters that were important. Our little hairs like to come up 
out of the letter, the pro, pro, project out of the top of the letter. You can see them right there. I hope you can see them. They're right over here. There's a, all through the text you have them. You, I got magnifying glasses there. You can look at them. But they're little tittles. See how they go up there? When they would put five together and they'd make bigger and then smaller and they'd put little ordination, ordinations on the top of it, that's called a crown or a tagon. And like the first letter of the uh, Torah is done extra heavy and a little large and it has a crown. It has five tittles with little curlicues on them on the top. Why? Because you wanted you to know, pause and pray. You are now beginning to read God's law, God's word. They were, they held this in such sacredness. They even showed it by they start, how they even started to write and they put tittles on it to adorn it. They would often do that with a name for God, Elohim. They would put tittles on it, Yahweh, uh, and also for Moses and Abraham once, not all the time, once in a while was a very important passage. They would do an ordination of tittles on top. And Jesus said, not one jot or one of those little tiny fine tittles will disappear until everything is fulfilled in the Word of God. And tell you what, this scroll proves they have not disappeared. You can still go all the way back, and they're there. And this proves for 2,500 years. And now it's 3,000 years later, we still have the scroll, and it has the tittles and every jot and every tittle. Incredible what they did to preserve the Word of God. Now, they could not touch the text. Put up their slide 317. They used pointers. Now, this is not an authentic pointer. But they would use pointers because they believed the text was so sacred. It's one reason why I ask you not to touch the text, that the human hand would defile it. And so they used pointers. And in the synagogues, like we would, our Bible, we'd take our finger, you know, and trace along. They would never do that. They would take a pointer, and their eyes would follow the pointer because they so held the text in such sacredness and reverence. And then, neither letter could touch each other. Now think of this. Over 304,000 letters. Now I'm sure there's one or two that touches, and they hadn't corrected it yet. But every letter was not to touch, and yet they did it with an old ancient quill, where the the ink could, could run like a river or something else. And if it did, they had to erase it, because it was an error. And... Then, you see the long lines in there? Within the text, you have this all along here, you can see it. What that was, they not only wanted you to copy it exactly, they not only wanted you to pronounce it exactly, they wanted you to interpret and appreciate it with accuracy. So these lines mean, slow down. This is very important, what is said here about God. Now, we have this in our English Bibles, many of them, in the Psalms. At the beginning of the Psalms, we'll say Selah, S-E-L-A-H, which means in Hebrew, pause and meditate upon this. It's very important. That's what those lines said. Pause and meditate upon them. And every line had to be done exactly over 3,000 years by every scribe that had to be professionally trained and memorize 4,000 laws to do that to every letter. <clears throat> Then when it came to the name for God, like Yahweh or Elohim, Adonai, they would put the pen down, the quill, 
they'd ceremonially they wash their hands, pick up a separate quill with a special ink, and they'd write the consonants for the name for God. Then they'd put that down and pick up the other. If they were writing the name for God and a king walked into the room, they could not look up and acknowledge his presence until he totally finished writing the name for God. That's how sacred it was to them and committed to accurate. No one ever did that with a Koran, with a classics, with anything. Let alone Harry Potter. But they did it with the scrolls in the Old Testament. When they came the name Yahweh, how many of you could stand up and explain what the Tetragrammaton is? You all know it after this. Tetra, tetra, four, grammaton, grammar. Tetra, gra, four, grammar. It's a reference to Exodus 3, 14 and 15, where it says, Whom can we say sent us? Nobody's going to believe this. And it says, What is your name? And God said, I am Yahweh. That's the sacred name for God over 6,200 times in the Old Testament. About a thousand times in the Torah. This name for God is held in such reverence, a Jew, even to this day, will not pronounce it. Even though it says it, they will not say Yahweh. Why? They believe their lips are so unclean, defiled, that even for the breath to pass between their lips to say Yahweh would defile it. So what they do? Often, they would draw a line. And when they would quote it in the synagogue, they would pause. Everybody knew it was Yahweh. Then, sometimes they just put two of their three of the consonants, not all four. Tetra, they wouldn't put all four of Yahweh. Y-H-W-H, it would look like to you in English. And But in the synagogue, they would pause. And everybody knew it was Yahweh. Then the Jews were dispensed throughout all the world. And after a number of years, they started to lose the capacity to pronounce the Hebrew. Because see, all of it was just solid lines of consonants. No breaks for word, just solid consonants, like the New Testament where Greek was written in. Say, that's crazy. How could they read it? They could read that as fast and as well and as accurate as you could read all the words broken up in English. Why? They were trained to do that when they read it. But the Jews were losing their ability to pronounce it. So what they did, the Masoretic scribes came along and they divided up into words and they added vowels to it to help the Jews that were dispensed throughout the world to even pronounce it accurately. Not just copy it, not just interpret it, but even to pronounce it accurately. That's called the Tetragrammaton. And so in the synagogues, they put in the vowels for the name Adonai, another name for God. So you had the consonants of Yahweh, the vowels of Adonai, and put together meant nothing, except to the Jew. So in the synagogue, and they chanted it, they would say, Adonai. Everybody knew it was Yahweh. Then the Greek translation came along, the Septuagint, and so they used the word kurios, meaning, or dominion, uh, meaning Lord. That's how we get Lord in the New Testament. It actually many times should be Yahweh, and, and, but it's appropriate saying Lord. And then what happened was, after they added the vows, it kind of became lost what they had done. And so along came some of the uh, English translators and others, and they said, what is this word for God? It makes no sense. So they, Yahweh, Adonai, Yahweh, Adonai, and they came out with Jehovah. 
That's how we got the name for God, Jehovah. It's a mistake. I even tell the Jehovah Witness, even your name is wrong. (laughs) And so that's how we got Jehovah, which is the mixture of the constants and one name for God and the vows. But you see, they were so careful, they wanted to preserve the name for God. So that's how we got Jehovah. That's a tetragrammaton. Now, to preserve it, they would divide the books up with four. You have one right right there is Genesis going into Exodus. Ending the gem, beginning of Exodus, and down there is Leviticus. They would do four blank lines, meant one book just ended, the next one begins. Now, in order for something very important to depict something about God, His faithfulness, His power, something else, they did something extra in the scrolls. They would extend letters that would look like this. This is the song of the sea about the Red Sea. Go to it, please. Uh, number 320. Well, you can't. See there? That's the song of the sea. And that was done that way for emphasis, meaning stop. This is very important to understand about who Yahweh, Adonai, Jehovah is. Oh, my gosh. They not only wanted you to accurately copy it, accurately interpret it, accurately pronounce it. They wanted you to accurately appreciate God, Yahweh. Then, once they finished the scroll, the entire scroll had to be checked letter by letter by letter. took months to do it by three different scribes to make sure every single letter is correct from a cert they had to use a certified scroll to even copy and then they go back and check 72 feet of that over 304,000 letters then you'll often see dots on top of some letters I have some uh, highlighted here you see on the left there the red circle There's some dots going along the top. Then on the right, you can see five dots. What those dots meant was, one, be very careful in reading this. Second, it meant there could be a textual problem here. But even if they thought there might be a textual problem, they could not copy it differently. They still had to do it exactly because they were committed to the exactness and often the textual problem was was our, our understanding of that passage. So they were so careful in accuracy, they put dots above the words, say there could be a textual problem here, or pay close attention to how you interpret this. Then, they had rolling pays. A pay, P-E-H actually, is a letter. But often they would make the letter a little larger, and I have you can see them all through here. Make the letter a little larger, and they would do a little curly cue in it. Why? They did that before the medieval times. That's one way you date this manuscript for the medieval times. Is because after that they didn't do that. They didn't think it was necessary. The more modern scribes. But they did this and made the letter a little larger called a rolling pay because they rolled the end of it up is to say, this is very important. This letter, this word right here, meditate on it. Wow! And everyone had to be exactly in 3,000 years on the scroll. And then, in Elohim, you can see where they would add uh, tittles to it. Hello, 
Right there. You see the little tittles going up. And in between the last two letters, you can see a yod or a jot. And right there you have jot and tittles together. And Jesus said that one jot or one tittle will ever disappear until everything is fulfilled. And we have 2,500 years of history right here. And they have not disappeared. And then... The spaces you see, you can look there and see, I can see 50 spaces drawn throughout of it. That was for emphasis, meaning this is a very important passage saying something about Yahweh, Adonai, Jehovah. So pause here. Incredible what they did for accuracy. Then they would often use what is called inverted nuns. I wanted to have a little nun dressed in black and one in white there, but I didn't. But they're called inverted nuns. And they have, this was a very important passage, so they put little tittles on top of it. And what this emphasizes is, is that the same phrase or teaching is also in another part of the Torah. And, and that this means it might even be better understood in another part. They knew where that other part was. And so it said here, as you read this, go to the other part and read it together. It might help you to understand. Can you see the care taken for accuracy? with this. And then they would finish 72 feet over one year just to copy it. That's not preparing it, correcting it, anything. Just to copy it over one year. I wouldn't have the patience. I stand at a microwave and say, hurry up. But when they finished, three times they'd go back. I, I, I don't know how they did You look at that. It looks printed to you. This was all done by hand. A man sitting had to be sitting alone doing this. They would take their counters. They were called counters. I thought it was a forerunner of Sesame Street. And would go back and they would count every single letter. 304,000 letters. And they would mark the center letter, which is Leviticus 11.42. They could tell. Now think of this. If they made a mistake in copying where they had added or left out one single letter... In the entire scroll. No one ever did that with any other literature. Not the Quran, not the classics, anything. But they did it for the accuracy of the Word of God. Then they go back, as in Leviticus 13.33, they would indicate that they'd count every single word, and they knew in every book what was a single letter and a single word, and they knew for the entire Torah what was a single letter and a single word, and three times they'd count every word and make sure they had not left out or added one single word in five books of the Torah and 72 feet. No one ever did that to assure accuracy. Then you'll see some little fine, they faded some little fine called scribal notes in the margins. There's about seven in the entire scroll. And this is where they, they say something about the text here. That careful, there might be an error in this text or something. Or be very careful when you read the third word, you can misinterpret it. They were so careful, they wanted you to understand it correctly. Then you'll find some dots. These dots... Uh, I have one there and a couple down there. They're little tiny dots. And the scribe would make a little dot saying, there could be the need of a correction in this line to the right of the dot. He wasn't absolutely sure, so he never changed anything. They always had to do it exact. 
And then they'd bring in the professionals, the real professionals, and they would check it back for a thousand years. All different. Is this the exact letter that should be there? But just to double check to make sure of accuracy, they'd put little dots in the margin. Nobody ever did that with any other literature of antiquity. God said not one jot nor one tittle will pass away. God said, I want a relationship with you. I created you to have a relationship with you. But it's got to be a right relationship. So I'm going to reveal to you my heart and my mind. I'm going to reveal to you truth about God, about man, about love, about marriage, about sin, about righteousness, about heaven, about hell, everything. But I'm not only going to reveal the truth to you, I'm going to protect it for 3,000 years. So that even now, you think of this next time you open your scriptures. With confidence, oh, I wish, if I had another hour, I'd have other relics from the New Testament here. I've got some that very few human eyes I've ever seen. And manuscripts not seen by 2,000 years. And if I had another session in the New Testament, it'd even be more incredible than this. But God said, I want you to be able in the 21st century in 2013, June 23, open your scriptures and have a confidence, thus saith the Lord. It has not been lost. Folks, this is the only third time I've ever done this, or anyone's ever done it. Last night, in the first service, now this is the third time. I hope it's meaningful to you. I hope it helps you. And, and you'll have 20 to 25 minutes at the break to come up. Look at it. There's magnifying glasses. You can come around this side, the other side. Please, no small children. Only touch the margin. If you really want to touch it, there's parchments down there that are brand new, just made last week. And you can touch. So, well, it took about three weeks to make them. But they just finished it the day before they shipped them overnight to me, to have them here. And one is sheepskin, one is calfskin. And you can check those. But folks, no one has ever had the gall, and I'm nervous about it, to lay this out in front of a church or any convention, conference, or anything. You go to Israel, you can't even get close to it. They're behind glass, everything. But I'll remember, see, all of this that I shared with you here, I learned before I ever became a Christian. Because I set out to write my first book to refute Christianity. And I went and studied all this to show that it was not accurate and correct. And I ended up becoming a Christian. You go to this book, starting page 69, and it'll blow your mind for about 100 pages about what I've talked about here, all documented. I could stand here literally for 30 hours, three hours without notes and tell you incredible things, how they preserve the truth. It's all documented in here. And then two other books that just came out. One is 77 Frequently Asked Questions About God in the Bible. My son and I took 77 of the most difficult questions that people run from, and we wrote out the answers and documented on an eighth grade level. You read this, it'll do two things. It'll give you a greater confidence in the Scripture, and it'll give you a greater confidence to use this to pass it on to the next generation. And then the book that just came out, the Bible Handbook of Difficult Verses. We took 225 Bible verses that Christians think there's no answer for it, that there must be a mistake, there's a conflict, there's a contradiction, whatever, or that makes no sense in interpretation. And we wrote it on the 8th grade level, so pastors can understand it, and scholars can, and scholars... But what it does, you'll read this and you go, oh my gosh, I never knew that's what that verse really meant. See, most people think there's a problem because they misinterpreted it. 
And when, you, when we document what the real meaning of it is, you go, I'm, ouch, I never knew that. And this will help you to have a greater confidence in Scripture and to help your children and grandkids. I'm going to be down here for 20, 25 minutes. Any quick, you can take photos of it, but if you post a photo on your website or anything, you must put the Lotz Grow, L-O-T-D-Z, the Lotz Grow, dash Josh D. McDowell. That's very important, or do not put it on the Internet, please. Otherwise, you can. Put it on your website, whatever, take photos. And I've tried to lay everything out so you can appreciate it more. Thank you for allowing me to come to the church of my favorite pastor in the entire world, Skip. I love that guy. He means so much to me and my family. Thank you. God bless. What binds us together is devotion to worshiping our Heavenly Father, dedication to studying His Word, and determination to proclaim our eternal hope in Jesus Christ. For more teachings from Calvary Albuquerque and Skip Heitzig, visit calvaryabq.org.